Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. That's right. <laughs> this is 94? Is yes. that what you said? Wow. Yeah. 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 The only update I have is that Phil Spector died. Yeah. <laughs> and now I can't remember what episode that was. Ah, oh, man, I was going to look that up, too. I was, too, but I forgot. But yeah. We're so great at promoting our stuff. <laughs> he died of COVID-related, which is kind of sad. but It is sad. And but yet, not really. But, you know, the person he killed died of a gunshot to the face. Yes, she did. So, you know, you know which is worse. Yeah. That's true. As far as dying, I think a gunshot to the face would probably be better because you don't suffer. It's just like you did. Right. But right. I can see what you're saying. Yeah. So do you have uh, First of all, I should have had an update, but I just had too much work to do. So I'm just going to preview. Okay. One of the issues with this is we never did a real episode. It was a couple it main... It was a main mini. Yeah. yeah, main mini, and then some substantial updates and... I can never remember when it was, but I'll find it. Next week, I will update Stephen Downs, who oh, is the, the Auburn, yeah. Maine man, who's charged with killing 20-year-old Sophie Sergi in 1993 in Fairbanks, Alaska, at the University of Alaska. And he is in court now. An evidentiary hearing started last week, and I'll update that. I, I just haven't had time to, to give it its due Okay, well, and, but I, I have forward a, to it. I have something else that's not really an update. Is it a peeve, a pet peeve? No. Oh, okay. I do have a lot of peeves, but I forgot to write them down. But, that's okay. But this is more of a, a learning moment for us. Um, Uh-oh. And I'm going to read something. What did I do wrong now? Nothing, but I'm going to, okay. it, it was very interesting to me, and I'm going to, I'm going to be reading from a book. All right. See, and you're not plagiarizing, though. No, because I'm going to tell oh, you. Oh, I'm going to be reading from, my whole episode is just, I just took a book and I'm just going to read. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, it's from See What You Made Me Do by Jess Hill. And she's an Australian woman whose book was published, I think it was published like a year ago in Australia. And then it just came out at the end of last year here in the U.S., and it's about domestic violence. Mm. But I always thought I kind of knew about Stockholm Syndrome. Reading this book, it's based on a fallacy. Ooh. So, and I found this Ooh, very... Just like that Kitty Genovese thing. Right, right. Wow. It, not just like... Well, I mean, the fact that they're both based on fallacies. Anyways, go it, on. There's a lot of things based on fallacies that we... But but I'm okay. just going to read it right from the book because she's a good writer and it tells it better than I could. So it's kind of like a mini... Um, and again, the book is See What You Made Me Do. Okay. And the writer's name is Jess Hill. Nothing exposes the mythical thinking behind learned helplessness better than Stockholm Syndrome. A diagnosis assigned to women who show affection for their captors and a distrust of authority. It's a classic throwaway line we use to describe the mental condition of domestic abuse victims, but it's also a term that's still taken seriously by some psychologists. Quote, a classic example of Stockholm Syndrome is domestic violence, says Oxford psychologist Jennifer Wilde, when someone, typically a woman, has a sense of dependency on her partner and stays with him. But Stockholm Syndrome, this is Jess again, a dubious pathology with no diagnostic criteria is riddled with misogyny and founded on a lie. The psychiatrist who invented it, Niels Bejerat, never spoke to the woman he based it on. 
never bothered to ask her why she trusted her captors more than the authorities. Hmm. More to the point, during the Swedish bank heist that inspired the syndrome, Bejerat was the psychiatrist leading the police response. He was the authority that Kristen Enmark, the first woman diagnosed with Stockholm Syndrome, distrusted. Enmark was 23 when, one morning in 1973, Jan Olsen walked into a bank in normal men's store. And for any of our um, I love Stockholm <laughs> listeners, I'm sorry if I get some of your, the beautiful language from your country wrong. And took her and three other clerks hostage. Over the next six days, the audacious heist became a blockbuster media event. Swedes had never seen anything like it, and neither had the police. With no training in hostage negotiation, the police mm. response was ham-fisted from the start. That's one of my favorite words, by the way. Ham-fisted. Ham it makes me hungry. Uh, me too. Early in the siege, they misidentified Olsen, and he was the robber, and, thinking they had found his younger brother, sent a teenage boy into the bank to negotiate, accompanied by Niels Bejerat, only to have Olsen shoot at him. Jeez. Oh, As Olsen became more and more agitated, his accomplice, Clark Olofsson, whose release from jail was one of Olsen's first demands, reassured the hostages. Quote, Clark comforted me. He held my hand, and Mark recalled in 2016. He said, I want to see that Jan doesn't hurt you. I can't say that I felt safe, because that's not the word, but I chose to believe him. He meant very much to me, because I thought that somebody cared about me. But there was no affection in that way. In some way, he gave me hope that this is going to end okay. That's the end of the quote. Okay. There was no such reassurance from the police. And Mark asked to speak to Bejerat, and that's the psychiatrist helping to lead the police response, but he refused. In a live radio interview from the bank, she blew up at the authorities. Quote, the police are playing with our lives, and then they don't even want to talk to me. Who is the one who will die if anything happens? Unquote. Sensing that their likelihood of survival was getting slimmer by the hour, Enmark took matters into her own hands. She called the Swedish Prime Minister, Olaf Palme, and begged him to let her and another hostage leave the bank with their captors. Quote, I fully trust Clark and the robber, unquote, she told Palme. Quote, I am not desperate. They haven't done a thing to us. On the contrary, they have been very nice. But you know, Olaf, what I'm scared of is that the police will attack and cause us to die. Mm. Palme refused to let her leave, saying they could not give in to the demands of criminals. Mm. At the end of the conversation, Enmark reported that Palme said to her, Well, Kristen, you can't get out of the bank. You will have to content yourself that you will have died at your post. <sighs> Enmark was appalled, telling Palme, I don't want to be a dead hero. Finally, police tear-gassed the bank vault and paraded the captors up and down the street to cheers and jeers from the crowd. Enmark watched, furious at this macho display. When she was told to lie on a stretcher, she refused. Quote, I walked in here six and a half days ago. I'm walking out. Unquote. On the radio, Enmark criticized the police and singled out Bejerat. In response, and without once speaking to her, Bejerat dismissed her comments as the product of a syndrome he made up. Normal... Menstorg syndrome, <laughs> later renamed Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> Thank <laughs> God, who can't pronounce. Right, I'm sorry. I, I, my Swedish is not good. The fear Enmark felt toward the police was irrational. Bejerat explained, caused by the emotional or sexual attachment she had with oh, her captors. Bejerat's snap diagnosis suited the Swedish media. They were suspicious of Enmark, who quote did not appear as traumatized as she ought to be. Unquote. <sighs> 
It is hard to admit, wrote one journalist, but the words that come to mind to describe her condition are fresh and alert, unquote. <sighs> her clarity was apparently proof that she was sick. Enmark's savviness in establishing a personal connection with the bank robbers was in fact confirmed after the siege by Olson, the robber, who said that in the early days of the siege he could have easily killed the hostages, and that they survived not only because they had been cooperative, but also because they had gotten to know each other. Four years later, when Enmark was asked to explain her actions, she was indignant. Quote, yes, I was afraid of the police. What is so strange about that? Is it strange that one is afraid of those who are all around in parks, on roofs, behind corners, in armored vests, helmets, and weapons, ready to shoot? Unquote. In 2008, a review of the literature on Stockholm Syndrome found that most diagnoses were made by the media, not psychologists mm -hmm. or psychiatrists, that it was poorly researched, and that the scant academic research on it could not even agree on what the syndrome was, let alone how to diagnose it. Alan Wade, who has consulted closely with Enmark, says Stockholm Syndrome is a myth invented to discredit women victims of violence by a psychiatrist with an obvious conflict of interest whose first instinct was to silence the woman questioning mm -hmm. his authority. And I just found that really interesting. And I don't know if I ever thought Stockholm Syndrome was an official diagnosis. I never thought that. I think I th just thought it was... Right. And, yeah. and I don't think I ever even realized, like, I vaguely knew that it came from a, you know, a Swedish bank robbery, but I didn't realize that, that I don't think I ever realized the camp the hostages were women or any of the history behind it. And I just found that whole thing really interesting. And, you know, like Patty Hearst was accused mm -hmm. of having it, and that was yes. obviously a more complicated story. I read a book that was fairly good on that by public masturbator Jeffrey Tubin. A couple Ew. years ago. I know. It's a term that we use frequently, and now that's kind of yeah. opened my eyes. And as usual, it's based in misogyny and not understanding women or how Thinking they that women can't. You know, so. the thing that bugs me is women physiologically have to go through a lot more than men as we grow up and become women and we give birth. We have to go through all sorts of hormonal shit. Some of us do. Well, you know, I'm talking about in general, the, right. spe and, the, the species of women as opposed yes. to men. And I think it's inherent in women to be very strong and be able to handle stress and emotion. Better. Women are very emotionally strong. Yes. Yeah. And w they're able like to the handle guy it at better. The beginning. But we get the rap of, of like, being weak, you know. Like the guy at the beginning of Kimmy Schmidt. Females as strong as yeah. him. Yeah, that is true. It not only gets misinterpreted, but I think it gets deliberately yes. misinterpreted because, Bye. you know, the guys don't want to give up their patriarchal position. They want to think they're stronger in all ways. Yeah, when they're it's so just strong. Mass, just look at the difference. And this is just in my personal experience with men in my family and men I've dated and men I've known. The difference between when a man gets a cold and when a woman mm -hmm. gets a cold. Exactly. You exactly. Women kind of power through and do what they have to do. And the men are have to it's do like everything. dying on the couch. I don't want to start. I know. I'm sorry. Yes. You we know, don't wanna, because we don't want to turn off our few straight male. You know, thanks, guys. Fans. We love you. We're not talking about you guys. We're talking about those not other all guys. men. Not, not all you men. guys. Not you guys, faithful <laughs> listeners. 
But anyway, I, I don't know what your what your script is, so I'm excited. You um, will probably recognize it, but like me, you will probably not know much about it. Like, ooh, I remember it, but I don't know much about it. I like and those I ones the surprised. best. Like the last one I did, where you feel, oh, I kind of know about this, but I'll do it anyway. And then you get into it, and it's like, ooh, this is more interesting. And this I is think. a main one, but oh, you, oh, didn't, you didn't play the main song last week. I mean, last episode didn't I? when you, you did a main I one. Thought I, I, I thought don't I know. did. I thought you I did from my... Well, maybe I'll surprise you and edit it in. We'll oh, see. great. The 16 counties in our state And by the way, I should say, because I don't I don't think I gave the credit, I should put it on our website. That song is from the main.gov website. You credited it one time, but yeah. But I don't think that's adequate. Go ahead, okay. I'm excited. All right, I'm ready. On the afternoon of December 16, 1983, Chief Petty Officer Mervyn Groton left his job at the naval base in Newport, Rhode Island, headed for his home in Belfast, Maine. It's about 280 miles and five hours or so, depending on the traffic. And Belfast is in the mid-coast of Maine. It's probably a population about 6,500 Mm-hmm. Nice, pretty little town. Yeah, used I'd, to, I'd like to live there. It's a nice. It town. used to have a big chicken processing factory, yeah. but now and it's it, a lot. And cuter. it has the Rennies that we talked about in the main yes, murder. That's it's, right. Yeah, Sunny, as Mervyn was known to friends and family, mm-hmm. made this drive every Friday night and had for the last few years. Sunny had been in the Navy for 24 years as a machinist and was an instructor at the Newport base. On Sunday afternoon, he'd get in his pickup truck and head back to Newport for the work week. When Sunny arrived at his home at 12 White Street, it was about 7.45 p.m. He backed into the driveway and started walking toward the house. And by the way, it's white, W-I-G-H-T, not white is the mm, color. But I noticed in some court filings, people spelled it wrong. That's interesting. Not that that matters. But As he walked up the drive, a shot rang out. The bullet entered Sonny's torso at the hip. There was another shot seconds later. That bullet entered Sonny's arm, ripped through his torso, and exited out his back. Oh. Sonny dropped to the ground. Then the shooter approached him, stood over him, and as Sonny instinctively put his hand up to ward off an attack, the shooter shot a bullet that went through Sonny's wrist and entered his head. The shooter ran off before anyone saw who he or she was. While it was dark at that time of night in the winter, the door yard, as we like to call it, was well lit. Sonny's 16-year-old son Michael was in his room with his friend Mark Weber playing guitars. Norma, Sonny's wife, was in the living room playing cards with her friend Juanita. She was also on the phone with her adult daughter, Rosalind, who heard the shots through the phone and asked if a car was backfiring or something. Norma hung up and ran outside, as did her son. Sonny was lying on the dirt driveway in a pool of blood. A neighbor had already called the police, and Norma did too. Some of the shows I watched say she called 911, but that wasn't a thing in Maine back then. Not to be nitpicky, I'm just saying. Norma and Sonny's daughter, Rosalind, later told 48 Hours that her grandmother, Margaret, called her. And this is a quote from Rosalind. She said, Rosie, you got to come over. Your dad's been shot. I'm like, oh, my God. (laughs) Herman Barr, Jr., a next door neighbor, ran outside after hearing the shots. 
At the time, Herman was a firefighter and ambulance attendant. He told the Bangor Daily News that Sonny was, quote, more or less drowning in his own blood. Uh. Belfast police officer William Francis arrived at the Groton House moments after the shots rang out. He spent hours in the house with Norma, her son, and the friends. He was there when Norma got the call from the hospital saying Sonny was dead. He told the court later, It was strange. There was no emotion. I was just struck by that. Hmm. Which, you know, that's not, you know, we know that that doesn't mean anything. Sonny was rushed to Waldo County General Hospital, still alive, but I looked at Google Maps. It's only like about a two-minute drive. It's right down the street, yeah. yeah. Although the emergency room team tried to save him, he was pronounced dead at 8.36 p.m. In a newspaper article many years later, Belfast Police Chief Alan Weaver, who had been working as a dispatcher in 1983, said, I remember I came to work that day and everything was going crazy. We got the call immediately after the shots were fired, after a neighbor had called it in. He was still alive when the police and ambulance arrived, but he expired shortly after he arrived at the hospital. At 8.27 p.m., Belfast police called the Maine State Police to report the shooting. As the weeks went by, police were unable to learn much about who killed Sonny Groton and why. The state police were assisted by the Naval Criminal Investigation Service, otherwise known as NCIS. When Sonny was in Newport, he stayed at the bachelor's quarters. He wasn't required to sign in and out, so his movements were not recorded. His quarters were searched, and Navy investigators talked to colleagues and friends on the base and found nothing. Sonny had been paid that day, and he had over $900 on him when he was shot. No one took the money, so robbery wasn't a motive. Two weeks after the murder, Kent Walker, the civilian in charge of the NCIS investigation, told the Bangor Daily News, quote, We are conducting a concurrent investigation with the Maine State Police and the Belfast Police and are trying to assist them in developing information on a possible suspect or motive. I can tell you frankly that we've run into a brick wall down here. We are doing whatever we can to help, but it's tough, very tough. We have talked to those who knew him and worked with him, but found nothing to support that it came from down here. While some reports online say Sonny was in naval intelligence and investigators thought that may have been the key, I don't think that's true. Mm. As I said, he was a machinist and his title was machinist mate instructor and he would instruct guys on the ships how to fix stuff. So that was only in one thing and I'm like, that doesn't even make sense. I think that's, you know how things online get blown out of. I don't have any memory of this and it's funny because by then I was working for the Biddeford Journal Tribune. You know, I graduated from college. It seems like if you see his picture, that's what I remembered when I saw his picture. And I remembered his wife. I remembered because I remembered later. You'll see. There were three spent 30-30 cartridges found near the woodpile towards the back of the driveway. The only other thing police had was the theory that the shooter had parked his car on Route 1 and escaped through the woods. White Street is more or less parallel with the Route 1 bypass or jug handle. And back then, a person could run from the back of the Groton home through the woods and jump in a car in a matter of minutes. The police asked anyone who had seen a car on Route 1 that evening to contact them, but there were no tips. Sniffer dogs were brought to the murder Mm. scene, of course. They led the police on a trail through the woods that abruptly stopped at Route 1, supporting the police theory that the killer had fled by car that way. Two weeks after the crime, police set up a roadblock on Route 1 to ask drivers if they'd seen anything that Friday night. About a month after Sonny's murder, the Bangor Daily News had a short story with the headline, Police continue search for clues to Belfast murder. State Police Detective Gene Pierce told the paper that, quote, an intensive investigation Mm. into the motive was ongoing. He said, there really is nothing new to report on publicly. 
We're still working on it quite actively, but have nothing to report. Lieutenant Pierce told the Bangor Daily News that family members have been questioned, but he wouldn't say if any family members have had taken lie detector tests. After that, the investigation languished. The murder of Mervyn Sonny, they always put Sonny in quotation marks. I hate that. Groton was relegated to the cold case bin. I used to tell reporters, if they go by the nickname, do the nickname and the last name. If they go by the first name, do the first name and the last name. But you don't need to put Mervyn Sonny Groton. It's either Mervyn Groton or Sonny Groton. Yes, exactly. And Uh. I chose Sonny. Who was Sonny Groton? Who was he? Why would anyone want to kill him? According to his daughter, Rosalind, Sonny was a loving, generous, kind person. Sonny and Norma had been married 26 years at the time of his death. He'd been in the Navy most of that time. I couldn't find out too much about Sonny and Norma's lives, since they're not famous people. But I gleaned some things from looking through old newspapers on, you guessed it, newspapers.com. My sources are mostly the Bangor Daily News and other papers that I'll cite when I quote from them. Also, Season 3, Episode 11 of Cold Case Files, mm. titled The Merry Widow slash Bad Cop. Hey, and hey, can I ask you, where did you find Season 3 of Cold Case Files? I don't know. Because I was looking for it for mine last week and I couldn't find it. Like, hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Season 3, Episode 11 of Cold Case Files, and 48 Hours NCIS, The Cases They Can't Forget, mm. The Sting. It was a pretty <laughs> long... 48 Hours apparently had... It was a short-lived series, kind of connected loosely to the NCIS series, since that's so popular. Both these shows had a lot of the same video clips. So when I quote the video, you know, it's from both shows. Sonny was born on November 15th, 1937 in Belfast. And the only way I know more about him is because of his obituary. Uh, Norma is still alive, so it's hard to find out. I tried to find her birth record. I tried to find, I couldn't find anything. He was the son of Mervyn Sr. and Margaret. Mervyn Sr. was a bit of a troublemaker as a younger man. When searching the Bangor Daily News, I found his name in several items throughout the 1950s and 1960s. In 1951, he was sentenced to 30 days for public intoxication, not his first offense. In 1960, he was fined $125 for operating under the influence. In 1964, he pled guilty with four other men of illegal possession of clams from a closed area Mm. and had to pay a $25 fine. And for people who aren't from Maine, what that means is that they were clamming in a place they shouldn't have been. In 1966, he was again charged with operating under the influence. He pled guilty and paid a $500 fine and spent three months in jail. And this is Senior, right? Senior, Mervyn, Sonny's dad. Right. Sonny's mother, Margaret, also made the papers when she was baptized in 1962 at the Northport Avenue Baptist Church. So she would have been in her, I don't know, 40s maybe. Mervyn Jr., or Sonny, so now the nickname makes sense, doesn't it? He's yeah, called oh yeah, Sonny because yeah, he's yeah. Mervyn Jr. Was in the paper a few times himself. In August 1954, there was an article in the Bangor Daily News about the Belfast Boy Scouts Court of Honor. Mm. Mervyn, then 16, was in a photo with his scoutmaster and two other boys. Sonny earned the following merit badges. Fishing, home repairs, first aid, camping, forestry, citizenship in the home, and cooking. Wow. In February 1957, when Sonny was 19, the following notice was in the Bangor Daily News. 
Mervyn Groton Jr. and Norma Small married at Belfast. Miss Norma Small, daughter of Mrs. Marie Small of Belfast, became the bride of Mervyn Groton Jr., son of Mr. and Mrs. Mervyn Groton Sr., Belfast, in a February ceremony in the parsonage of the Methodist Church. The service was performed by the Reverend Roy S. Grafham. Maid of Honor was Miss Rebecca Wood of Belfast and Stephen Staples, also both Belfast, acted as the best man. A reception followed the ceremony at the home of the bride's mother on Park Street where the couple planned to reside. Mm. The bride attended Crosby High School. The bridegroom is a student at Crosby High School. Sonny and Norma's daughter, Betty Ann, was born in, on September 29th, 1957. Hmm. So she was, yeah, she was pregnant when they were right. married. Yeah, that makes sense. And he was still in high school. Yeah, so yeah he was, he's like a year younger than mom and dad. He was still in high school in June of 1958, so I'm assuming maybe he was held back a grade. And also, since his birthday is in November, he probably didn't start first grade until 1944. So I would have assumed he would have graduated in 57, so he must have been held back because he's in the paper in June 1958 receiving an intramural basketball award for grade 12. Mm. Yeah, so he must have graduated. Mom and Dad were born in 1936, and they graduated in 1954. On November 18, 1958, there was a notice in the Bangor Daily News that Mr. and Mrs. Mervyn Groton had welcomed a son. Mm. I couldn't find out much about Norma prior to her marriage to Mervyn, but in May 1959, she made national news. The Boston Globe's headline on May 26, 1959 read, Mother ran for help. Three children die in beds as Belfast home burns. The Indianapolis Star read, Three children perish in fiery home. The Ben Bulletin in Oregon, trapped children die in blaze. Wow. There were hundreds of papers carrying the story because United Press International picked it up. And I think everybody loves this. I mean, not... Right. A fire fire where kids die. Yes, that's a story that they like to... This is what happened. A fire broke out while Norma was in the kitchen one morning. She escaped, but her three children didn't. None of the papers mentioned the cause of the fire or where it started or how it started, and I tried to find out if there were subsequent reports. Nothing. The children were Russell, who was four, and Norma's son from a previous marriage. And though his father isn't named, even in a subsequent article about the children's funerals, the BDN has a caption under his picture that says Russell Groton Jr., which is weird, but I think Mm. it's just some kind of typo. Betty, who was about, well, not typo, mistake. Betty, who was about one and a half years old, and Mervyn III, who was seven months old. From the Indianapolis Star, Quote, Dale Palmer and Mrs. Frances Moores, who lived nearby, saw the children peering with horror through the window. They said even the youngest child was at the windowsill. Palmer and Miss Moores climbed the ladder but couldn't budge the window, though it apparently was not locked. They were forced down by flames and heat. From the Boston Globe, three small children suffocated in their beds today when a fast-moving fire turned their home into a mass of flames and smoke. The mother, Norma, 23, was in the kitchen of the home at 102 Congress Street when the fire broke out at 8.15 a.m. The youngsters were asleep in upstairs bedrooms. Mrs. Groton ran to the nearby house of neighbors for assistance, but when she returned within a matter of moments, the one-and-a-half-story frame dwelling was completely enveloped in flames. The frantic mother and neighbors made desperate attempts to enter the house, but were rebuffed by the combination of flame, smoke, and intense heat. 
The father was at work at his place of employment, Belfast Manufacturing Company, at the time. The Bend Bulletin from Oregon. Mrs. Groton was on the first floor when the fire broke out. She tried to rush upstairs to save her children, but was forced back by flames. She was not seriously hurt. Her husband was at work. Yeah. Firemen said the house was a mass of flames when they arrived. Cause of the fire was not determined immediately. And like I said, I tried to look it up later, and I didn't find anything that said what the cause was. Hmm. And that was all I found in the papers about them until Sonny's murder in 1983. What? Three years after the murder, on December 20th, 1986, the Bangor Daily News had a story with the headline, Officials Still Baffled by Unsolved Waldo County Murders. The article discussed the high number of murders in Waldo County since 1981, 14 murders. Wow. Although only 3% of the state's population lived in Waldo County, it accounted for 8% of the murders during that three-year period. Four of these murders were unsolved at the time of the story. I wonder if it's because it's when the chicken plant closed and there was a lot of unemployment. On one of the shows I watched, there was somebody talking about it, and they said there were a lot of drugs coming in at yeah, that time. Yeah, but that was true everywhere in Maine. I'll talk about it later. Okay. State police spokesman Steve Bunker told the BDN, which is Bangor Daily News, it's hard to do an analysis of murder because it deals with human nature and violent moods. It's very hard to track things like that. <laughs> what the hell? Tom Good... That was Steve Bunker, not Steve McCausland, huh? Steve McCausland wasn't there yet, I oh, guess. Oh, yeah, right, right. Tom Goodwin. I remember Tom Goodwin when I saw his picture. They have a big picture of him in the paper. Assistant Attorney General. He was a big guy with a big bushy beard, like an older uh-huh. ball guy. Said, quote, these cases are all listed as unsolved. Some are more active than others, but I don't claim we're close oh, to solving wait, wait, them. Wait, wait, wait. So they had 14 murders in five years, and they were mm-hmm. all unsolved? No, four of them were unsolved. Oh, okay. And there was an interesting passage from this article that I want you to stick a pin in for later. Ooh. Let me read it to you. Ooh. Scott Lacombe, 22, was shot to death one day before he was to appear for sentencing in a cocaine-selling case. He died in his girlfriend's arms, and police said the girlfriend described the killer as resembling Joel Fuller, 30, of Searsmont. Fuller, who is free on bail pending trial for the murder of cocaine dealer Norman Grenier of Swanville, subsequently was convicted of the Grenier killing and is serving a 50-year sentence at the state prison. Authorities do not deny that Fuller is a suspect in the Lacombe killing, quote, there is is a prime suspect in that case, but I'm not in any position to talk about who the suspects are, Goodwin said. And an aside, and an aside, also mentioned in this article as unsolved, was the 1984 bludgeoning murder of Dorothea Burke, which was updated in 2020 when Kurt Damon Sr. was arrested, and the 1980 bludgeoning murder of Arthur Robinson, which has never been solved. And Sonny was one of the, obviously was one of the Unsolved yeah. murders. That article was the last substantive mention of the Sonny Groton case until May 2001. On May 10th, 2001, the Iola Register in Kansas had a front page story with the headline, Gas Woman Charged in 1983 Murder. And gas is a town, G-A-S. The sidebar had the headline, Arrest Stuns Local Friends, Neighbors. The story reported how Norma Small of Gas, Kansas, had been arrested for murdering her husband in Belfast, Maine, and she was also charged with theft of Navy benefits. There was a photo of Norma's mobile home in South Gas. And just a clarification, after Sonny's death, Norma went back to using her maiden name. Also arrested in the case was Boyd Smith from Brooks, Maine, and two months prior, Joel Fuller, who was already serving 
quote, two life sentences for murder was arrested. The register was wrong since Joel Fuller was actually serving a 50-year sentence for the murder of Norman Grenier and then got life in prison when he was sentenced for the murder of Scott Lacombe. I know that's nitpicky, but it bugs me. They kept no, A lot true. of things said two life sentences. Yeah. So Joel Fuller, who killed those other two guys, was also being sentenced for Sonny Groton's murder, which means he murdered three of the... You mean of the, being charged? Yeah, he was charged with it. Sorry. Yeah. Norma Small's Kansas so basically neighbor, a serial killer. I know. Norma Small's Kansas neighbors were indeed stunned. Neighbor Sally Gullick told the register, you mean that little old lady who lives by herself? I have a very hard time believing that she could do something like that. A former neighbor, Marge McLaughlin, said, I was completely dumbfounded when I heard that Norma had been arrested. I still can't believe it. She seemed like such a nice lady. For the record, they're calling her a little old lady. She's like 61 at the so time. So she's like my age, I'm a little older than I me. Know. Marge McLaughlin also told the paper that Norma had recently been working as a chambermaid at the Crossroads Motel in Iola until she lost her job when new owners took over. Quote, she wasn't doing much of anything since then. Hmm. The register reported that Norma was of Native American descent, which may or may not be true. I don't know. Marge said that Norma was proud of her heritage. Quote, she would make those dream catchers quite a bit. She didn't make any noise at all. She was just another quiet neighbor. Pat Spencer, the postmaster in Gas, was friends with Norma and said she visited with some of us about selling dream catchers over the internet. Now, if you don't know what a dream catcher is, it's one of those little hoops with a net stretched across it. It's usually decorated with feathers. Its mm-hmm. purpose is for the net to catch a person's bad dreams or dark spirits, while the good dreams will go through the small hole in the center. Mm. The tradition of dream catchers started with, with the Ojibwe nation and may have spread to nearby groups, but it wasn't widespread thing. And it, so it wasn't an Abnaki thing, which no, if she but was Native I don't, American, she would have been. If she was from Maine, though, but i that's the thing. I don't know why she moved. A lot of other Native American groups took, like, in the 60s and yeah. 70s when they yeah. had. I know she was born and she was from, grew up in the Belfast area. She, well, I don't know why she moved to Kansas. Probably so. to escape murder charges. I know, but if you're going to escape, would you move? I mean, no offense to Kansas, but, I mean, I would assume I, she has I, some family there. But I would always say. feel like, well, why did last week, what's his name, go from Montana to Maine? That's true. You know, you go somewhere far away that's completely different from where you live because you figure nobody's going to be looking for yeah, you there. That's true. And one of her daughters, Nina, also lived in Kansas. Mm-hmm. Norma was held without bond per Maine's request. She refused to waive extradition, which meant that the state of Maine would have to fill out and deliver extradition documents to have her brought to Maine. Norma's refusal to waive extradition would not keep her from eventually coming to Maine to face the music. She was just delaying everything and causing a hassle. The Bengal Daily News had an article the same day that she was arrested with the headline, Two More Indicted in 83 Belfast Killing. Norma and Boyd Smith were secretly indicted the day before they were arrested. Joel Fuller had been charged a couple months before them. At a news conference after the arrest, Maine State Police Lieutenant Tim Doyle told reporters, It was Norma Small's plan to have her husband killed. Smith acted as the middleman. Fuller was the trigger person. It certainly was her plan that it was to be done. Smith was initially approached and was not willing or able to do it. He introduced Joel Fuller to Norma Small. That's the end of that quote. Multiple news articles reported that Norma had collected over 158000 in survivor's benefits from Ooh. the Navy. At the time of her arrest, she was getting $942 a month from the Veterans Administration. Some other articles put the amount at 88000 and another at 
180,000, but the one I, it probably depends on how they're, but the one I heard the most was 158,000. Mm-hmm. Norma's arrest came after the investigation into Sonny's murder was reopened by Maine State Police along with NCIS. So this was, she was arrested in 2001, right? Also assisting in the investigation were the Waldo County Sheriff's Department and Belfast Police. Boyd Smith's arrest was also met with surprise by his friends in the community of Brooks, where he lived, which is a bit northwest of Belfast. Several of his friends showed up to Boyd's bail hearing to offer support, and his lawyer said Boyd Smith was known as a hard worker and had a lot of friends. But the judge decided Boyd should stay in jail, and he was denied bail and returned to the Waldo County Jail in Belfast. A month later, Norma Small was still sitting in the Neosho County Jail in Erie, Kansas. The Iola Register reported that an extradition warrant has been signed by Maine Governor Angus King and should be here soon. Angus is now our senator, as right. some of you might and know. I, and I'll take this opportunity to point out, you frequently hear that the Senate has 50 Democrats and 50 Republicans. It actually has 48 Democrats. Angus and Bernie Sanders are both independent, but That's they right. usually vote with the Democrats. That's right. I just wanted to clarify that, because it bugs me every time I hear on TV that there are 50 I Democrats. Know. They could go rogue anytime. And I made a note to ask Matt why extradition warrants take so long. If you recall, that was why I was trying to remember what episode we were yeah, talking Steve, about, that Alaska right. guy. Stephen Downs. We had that question there, too. It took anyway. forever for them to extradite I him. Know. And then look at last week with what's-his-name last episode. It was three months, and he still hadn't been extradited when he killed himself. So we'll we'll have to talk to Matt. Matt will tell us. Well, send me an email so I can put it in the Google I know. I wrote it on my notes. Okay. One month after that, the register reported that Norma's hearing was continued until August 10th. She was challenging the extradition warrant, but finally on August 10th, Norma waived extradition and agreed to return to Maine to face trial for Mm. her husband's murder and the theft of Navy benefits. She, couple, if she could only have held out for one more month, why? Norma. Because once 9-11 happened, oh, I know, everything I know. just went to shit. I know, I was thinking about that. A couple weeks later, in her first main court appearance, Norma pled not guilty to the charges. Judge Nancy Mills, whose sister-in-law yeah. of our governor, denied Norma bail at her arraignment. But Judge Mills gave Norma's court-appointed lawyer, Peter Mason, from Searsport, 60 days to catch up and file any motions. Attorney Mason told the Bangor Daily News that he would be arguing that Norma should get bail. As if. Come on. In the meantime, Norma was going to be transferred to the Hancock County Jail in Ellsworth because of overcrowding in Belfast. Why the hell should she get bail? She friggin' ran to Kansas. Actually, she didn't run. She lived in Maine for a while before she moved to Kansas. The first person in this murder conspiracy triad to go on trial was Boyd Smith. On February 4th, 2002, Boyd Smith's trial started. The trial was held in Penobscot County because of the publicity about the case in Waldo County. And probably everybody is related and knows each other. Yes. Assistant Attorney General Andrew Benson portrayed Boyd as an active procurer of Sonny Groton's killer. Defense attorney Eric Morris described Boyd as naive and misguided. The judge was Justice Andrew Meade. Boyd Smith was the boyfriend of Sonny and Norma Groton's daughter Rosalind back in 1983. He was living in the house for a while before the murder. Shortly after Boyd moved in, Norma started asking him to kill her husband, telling him she would pay him $10,000 to do it. Mm. Boyd apparently thought about it and even tried a dry run, in which he hid behind the woodpile and waited for Sonny to arrive home one Friday night. He got so nervous and upset thinking about killing Sonny that he threw up. After Mm. that, he told Norma he wouldn't be able to do it. 
As A.G.A. Benson told the court at his trial, he knew he was personally too much of a coward to shoot Sonny Groton, <laughs> but he still wanted that money. <laughs> Okay, he was too much of a coward, whatever. Norma started hectoring Boyd to find somebody to do it if he wasn't able to. Can I just, one thing, if you want to have your spouse killed, you should be discreet. No shit. Yeah, why don't you just go ask everybody, you know? I know. Put an ad in the paper. Because sooner or later, somebody's pie hole is not going to be shut, (laughs) you know? And, and, you know, Although people did keep this a secret for a long time, because it was like 17 years. Boyd knew of Joel Fuller. A guy who would do just about anything for money. He met Joel at a bar named Raleigh's Cafe in Belfast. Oh, I know Raleigh's. Yeah. I've been there. He told Joel what Norma wanted and gave him Norma's information. Eric Morse, the defense attorney, told the court that Boyd may have, quote, made some serious mistakes in 1983, <laughs> but the serious mistakes did not rise to the level of murder, end quote. And yes, Boyd knew that Joel Filler, quote, had a reputation for being crazy. <laughs> And the boy had given Joel Norma's phone number, but he was not the person who pulled the trigger. He was not there on the night that happened. He was far away. He had no knowledge where it was going to take place or if it was going to take Mm. place. Boyd Smith's defense was that his role was not significant enough to merit a conviction of murder. Eric Morse told the jury that once they heard the evidence and Justice Meade explained the law on accomplice liability, the jury would find Boyd not guilty. During Boyd Smith's trial, the jury watched two videos. One was of Boyd speaking with two undercover NCIS investigators near a graveyard in Belfast. And I think I know where that, that's that big graveyard that, right? You know. They called themselves Tony and Bubba, and they told Boyd they were friends of Joel Fuller's from prison. If you recall, Joel was in prison for the unrelated murders of Scott Lacombe and Norman Grenier, and Joel was in prison in Pennsylvania. He started in the main state prison, and after he got his second conviction, they sent him to Pennsylvania for some reason. Tony and Bubba told Boyd that Joel had been arrested because someone was talking, and it better not be Boyd. Boyd said it wasn't him, it must be Norma. They asked Boyd if he was the one that got Joel Fuller involved, and Boyd said yes, he was. Or actually, he said, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm. He told the two agents that Norma had asked him to do the killing, but he couldn't. Boyd said, (laughs) I'm laughing because he's got a wicked mane. If you see the taste, he's a wicked mane accent. Boyd said, Norma wanted her husband gone. That was the bottom line. She was always bitching and rah, rah, rah about it and this and that. She asked me if I would do it. Actually, she asked me several times, and I thought about it and thought about it and thought about it, and I got cold feet. I said, no way, can't do it. The other video shown in court was the interrogation of Boyd Smith by Maine State Police Detective Dean Jackson and NCIS agent Jeffrey Morrow. As the Bangor Daily News wrote, they pushed, pulled, prodded, and cajoled Smith into confessing over the course of a six-hour interview. Mm. Sounds a little read technique Yes, I said the same thing. Yeah. Boyd said during the questioning, she said, I'd like to see him dead. I thought she was just yanking my chain. <laughs> <laughs> he said, he, I shouldn't laugh, I'm sorry. He said he realized she wasn't when she offered him money. For some reason, near the end of the questioning, Dean Jackson held hands with Boyd Smith. Honestly, after learning about the read technique, like we just said, and watching some of this, you can see it's like a textbook. Right, right. Read He's holding technique. hands to make him feel And poor like, Bo- Boyd so is just playing like, worn out by yeah. the end of that. Boyd and Dean Jackson are hold, held hands, and Boyd told Jackson that he and Joel Fuller, quote, took a walk. I asked him if he was interested, told him I knew someone who wanted someone dead, and told him there was some money involved. The next time Boyd met with Joel, 
Boyd told Dean Jackson. He gave Joel Norma's information and said, My job's done, Joel. If you meet her and decide you don't want to do it, just walk away. Then Boyd told the detectives that he never saw Joel Fuller again. The second meeting was months before Sonny was shot. When the murder happened, Boyd said he was shocked. They asked him why he didn't report it. Boyd said of Joel, he had a reputation for being a nutcase. You don't want to cross him. He could really mess you up. That makes me the rat. That makes me the target. And I have to say that he had a point considering yeah. that Joel killed at least two other people I already. I know, I know. After that, you know, know, but still. Boyd added, I didn't sleep good for a long, long time. I still don't sleep good. Boyd also told his questioners that he didn't know why Norma wanted to kill Sonny. Mm. Quote, I don't remember her ever giving me a reason why she wanted him dead. I guess she just didn't get along with him. <laughs> so, like, if someone said to you, hey, I'll give you 10 grand to kill my husband, wouldn't you say why? Yeah. He seems like a nice guy. Yeah, and, and he's gone, to... and he's gone fucking five well, days a week. On Thursday, February 7th, after seven hours of deliberation, the jury, which was eight men and four women, found Boyd Smith not guilty of murder. AGA Andrew Benson told the Bangor Daily News, Naturally, I'm very disappointed. I'm disappointed that after Boyd Smith admitted arranging the murder of Sonny Groton, the jury decided not to hold him accountable. Boyd Smith was tried under the Maine State's accomplice liability law, which would have required the state to not only prove Joel Fuller was the killer, but also that Boyd Smith had a direct connection with the murder and Joel Fuller hadn't been to trial yet. Yeah, you kind of wonder why they didn't try Fuller first. No shit. But there was evidence that Joel Fuller could have done the crime. At the trial, a former friend of Joel Fuller's, Larry Phillips, testified that Joel told him about Norma. Well, he told him the wife of a man in the service offered him $500 to kill her husband. 500 I know. Joel showed Larry the creek where he threw the gun. Years later, someone fishing or swimming, depending on the source, I found one that said it was a fish, someone fishing and the other said kids swimming, found a 30-30 rifle and brought it to the police. It was too damaged and rusty for ballistics testing. The prosecution said that Boyd was a vital link in the murder scheme, and the fact that he didn't come forward after the murder proved he was complicit. The defense admitted that Boyd made initial introductions, but had no involvement after that. According to the accomplice liability statute, a person can end their involvement before the crime is committed. The state is required to prove someone's direct participation in planning and committing the murder. The jury came back to court during deliberations to ask if Boyd Smith could be charged with solicitation of murder if he was found not guilty. But the statute of limitations on that crime had run out by 2002. Justice Meade told them other crimes were not their concern. Quote, find the facts, apply the law, and determine if the state has proved its case. End quote. And what he meant was the state had to prove its case for murder and nothing else. Right. Boyd Smith testified in his own defense. He told the jury he did meet with Joel Fuller, but he said he not only told Joel, but also Norma that after that he was done. Quote, I said, but that's between you and him. I don't want anything to do with it. Leave me alone. <laughs> in his closing statement, defense attorney Morse told the jury, it's drastic to hold someone accountable for the conduct of someone else when you are not at the scene and you did not pull the trigger. We know what was inside the mind of Norma Groton. She's the one with the motive. She's the one with something to gain. She's the only connection to Joel pulling the trigger. Attorney Morse said that Boyd was not required to let police know about his knowledge about the crime and that his actions didn't fit the charges. 
quote, yes, he made the introduction. He made these mistakes, and then he backed out. He was petrified that what he did was a terrible wrong, and he knew in his heart that it was terribly wrong. Norma Small got what she wanted from Boyd Smith. She is the accomplice. Joel Fuller and Norma Small await trial right now. Justice will be done. They will have to face the music. Maine State Detective Dean Jackson said of the not guilty verdict, I think the jury felt a little sorry for him. That's what it seemed. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. the only reason, Dean. I would have had trouble finding him. I mean, I, I, I didn't sit through the whole trial, but I would have had trouble. He introduced them, yes, but... It's not murder. I mean, yeah, right. he's not guilty of murder. and that's, they had charged him with something else. And you it, know, they said the statute of limitation right. had run out, so right. they couldn't. that was the only thing they could charge him with, I guess, right. at that point, was murder, because it was so. It had been such a long time. Norma Small was next. Norma's trial was held at the Sagdahuk County Courthouse in Bath, with Justice Nancy Mills presiding. As with Boyd Smith's trial, the venue was changed because of the notoriety of the case. The jury picked was nine women and five men. Two of those were alternates, and so it ended up with eight women and four. AGA Andrew Benson was again prosecuting. Norma's lawyer was Peter Mason of Searsport. Norma had also been visited by NCIS undercover agents. Her lawyer told the court that these thugs from the penitentiary, end quote, had scared Norma into saying things that incriminated herself. Peter Mason said she denied knowing Joel Fuller. She was pressed and made statements out of fear for her family. Several witnesses at Norma's trial testified that despite her claims to the contrary, she knew Joel Fuller. Two sisters, Karen Reed of Lincolnville and Vicki Harriman of Liberty, testified. Karen said that Joel Fuller was her cousin, and Vicki was his cousin too. But they, it was very unclear in the first thing I, in the paper that they were both his cousins. Mm. But they are sisters, so anyway. Karen said that Joel Fuller was her cousin, and she had seen him partying at Norma's house several times. Vicki Harriman told the court that Norma knew Joel, and also that she, Norma, was sick of her husband, and said that Sonny was worth more dead than alive. Mm. The Sunday before the murder, Vicki was at Norma's house when Sonny was getting ready to leave. After Sonny kissed Norma goodbye and left, Norma shuddered and said, That's the last time he'll ever touch me or ever kiss me. Poor Sonny. I know. Larry Phillips, who had testified at Boyd Smith's trial, told again the story of how Joel told him about the murder for hire he'd done. A.G.A. Benson emphasized to the court how many correct details of the murder Larry Phillips knew, like where Sonny was shot on his body and the fact that Joel stood behind the woodpile. The police hadn't released the fact that one of the shots went through Sonny's wrist, and Larry told them that Joel said he shot through Sonny's hand, and also the fact that Larry knew where Joel had thrown the gun in the stream. Boyd Smith also testified for the prosecution at Norma's trial. He told the court the story he told at his own trial, that Norma wanted him to kill Sonny, and when he told her he couldn't do it, she said she wanted him to find someone else. Quote, I gave him Norma's name and address. I told him I didn't want any more to do with it. If he met her and decided to do it, I didn't want any more to do with it. Norma, Norma's daughter, Nina, testified against her mother. Nina said when she was 16, Norma said she'd be, quote, better off if dad was dead. Mm. And that remark stuck in her mind when she heard Sonny had been shot. Nina also testified that she'd seen Joel Fuller at Norma's house several times in the weeks before the murder. Norma herself was a witness for the prosecution in a way. The videos made by the undercover NCIS agents were shown to the court. In the tapes, Norma said Sonny's murder was, quote, just one of those things. She also said that <laughs> she was the one who, quote, started the ball rolling. She told Tony, the fake prison buddy of Joel Fuller, that she wasn't a snitch. 
quote, no leak here, no leak whatsoever get word back to him that I expect the same. Norma's defense was that she may have told Joel she wanted him to kill Sonny, but she didn't really want it to happen, but there's no way to back out. However, in her interviews with the police, she didn't really seem too upset about the outcome. On the tapes made of her interrogation in Kansas, the Maine State Police detective and the NCIS agent asked her if she thought it was okay that she kept taking money from the Navy, even though she was the one who caused Sonny's death. She said yes, because otherwise, quote, I wouldn't have nothing to live on. Right. Then she said, She was a widow, for God's sake. I know. (laughs) Then she said, I tried working, but that just took too much out of me. (laughs) And I said, I hear (laughs) you. She can join the club. (laughs) They told her they were puzzled as to why she'd have her husband killed. Quote, I just got tired of the bullshit. And Mm. they are like, yeah, what kind of bullshit? Oh, just picky, aggravating things. (laughs) After the jury deliberated four and a half hours, Norma Small was found guilty of murder. After the trial, Rosalind and Nina Grott and Norma and Sonny's daughters hugged, but didn't want to speak to reporters. However, family friend Vicki Harriman spoke on their behalf. Quote, Not for many years did they think it was their mother. I think they're feeling empty now. Sonny Groton was a wonderful man, someone you'd be proud to know. Vicki told the Bangor Daily News that the daughters blamed Norma and Boyd Smith more than Joel Fuller. Quote, Boyd Smith walked, and that man should never have walked. That man was as guilty as Norma. Joel was just a gun. But Boyd Norma, Boyd was a friend. See, I would blame the guy who pulled the trigger. No shit. Sonny Groton's uncle Carl Elmer Groton and wife Betty came from Baton Rouge, Louisiana to attend Norma's trial. Carl said, I'm just glad it's over. It took a weight off my shoulder after all these years. The anxiety, the sadness. I'm glad justice has been served. Betty said she felt sorry for the kids and the grandchildren. We suspected her all along. We thought she had something to do with it, but we never had any proof until today. Norma was sentenced to 70 years in prison, 60 for the murder, and 10 for the theft of benefits, pension, and insurance money. The sentences were to be served consecutively. I think she's still in prison in Wyndham, Maine, with some of our other subjects from different episodes. Norma testified in her own defense at her trial, (laughs) but the tapes of her Mm -hmm. with the undercover officer, whose name is David Truesdale, we find out in 48 hours what his real name is. Cold Case Files was... I think in 2003, and he must have still been working, so they didn't mm. have his name. The video of her questioning made clear she wanted she had wanted Sonny killed. First of all, in both videos, she confirms the theory for a murder-for-hire plot, which, until she blabbed about it, the police only had that as a theory. They didn't know for sure that that's what happened. Norma said to NCI agent Truesdale Tony about who was leaking to the police, Sure ain't me, honey. No, sir. They're lying. Lying to get some info, but it didn't work with me. And then she said it wasn't her who was talking to police, but maybe, quote, that big tall fellow, what's his name, Boyd, Boyd Smith. He was a friend of the family. He's the only one that knew. Norma told Tony that she was going to hire Boyd to kill Sonny, but, quote, he was the one that was supposed to do the thing. I don't know what his problem was. (laughs) Norma was, matter of fact, She asked Boyd to take care of her husband, to take him out, to put it simply. She said, to put it simply. She told the cops she offered Boyd $10,000. Norma told the interrogators she has, quote, no qualms, no guilt. She was all right with God. Mm. When asked if her kids would understand, she said, they'll understand. On the 48-hour show, Rosalind, her daughter, told the interviewer she almost lost her lunch when she heard Norma say that. 
About Boyd, Rosalind said, I couldn't believe that this person that I'd had a relationship with a year before that was capable of even thinking of doing something like that. That's just too wild. Do you really know your parents? Do you really know your spouse? Do you really know your children? It kind of makes you almost paranoid. Do you know anybody? It's scary. Norma had been under a cloud of suspicion from the beginning. The main state trooper who originally went to the home after the shooting told 48 Hours, I was confident that when our detectives showed up that they were going to go in there and within half an hour they were going to be lugging her out in handcuffs. And when it didn't happen, I was shocked. And just an aside to 48 Hours, it pisses me off because some of the people such as the NCIS agent Jeff Morrow and state police detective Dean Jackson and the undercover guy, they have their names and titles like super big and these big letters and oh, they're so great. And then a bunch of other people like the state cop who I actually really like they don't have his name they don't say who he is Jesus. it's very annoying at least on cold case files Bill Curtis with his narration is like ooh the state trooper yeah. blah 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 police didn't think there was sufficient evidence to charge anyone at the time according to 48 hours it was the NCIS who made the case a priority 17 years after it happened. But cold case file says it was the main state police, so I don't know. Mm. Jeff Morrow of NCIS said that Norma had been interviewed 11 times over the years. He said interviewing her again without any new information wouldn't be worth it, which is how they got the undercover guys involved. And it did open up a new avenue because Agent Truesdale found out about Boyd Smith when he asked Norma who might be talking about the murder and that he hadn't been on the radar at all. When Maine State Police and NCIS started working the case again, they re-interviewed witnesses from years ago. They had already heard a lot of stories about Norma and how she enjoyed her freedom while her husband was away, sleeping around, doing drugs, possibly selling them. Detective Richard Reichel of the Maine State Police, who was on the original investigative team, told Cold Case Files, Norma kind of liked it the way it was and i think from talking to some friends that she was not too pleased about the fact that sunny was going to be retiring and moving home full time dean jackson who was the main state police on the updated investigative team told 48 hours she dreaded when sunny came home and was happy when he left for the week detective rachel asked her to take a polygraph quote she was very upset about that she was Hmm. throwing up (laughs) She didn't want to take that polygraph, and those are pretty good indicators that maybe she had something to hide. Dean Jackson, I know. Dean Jackson said, quote, she wouldn't take the polygraph. That's kind of a red flag. And I'm like, but is it really, Dean? Even if I were innocent, I would not want to take one because they're such bullshit and fucked up. I know. Rosalind, the daughter, told 48 Hours that she said to her mom, I'll go with you. Just take the stupid lie detector test. You didn't do anything wrong, so what are you afraid of? Hmm. She wasn't guilty of anything, so why not take it? That's how Rosalind felt back then. NCIS looked at the financial benefits, property, insurance, pension, follow the money, as they say. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem like much, but Norma's motive was more than money. Rosalind, her daughter, said... It was kind of like, well, it's an awful thing to say, but it's true. Kind of a Jekyll and Hyde type of person. She could be fine one minute, and the next minute you'd want to duck because something's going to go flying and you're going to get hit. My dad was such a nice person, and he would be helping everyone else in any spare moment that he had. And it would piss my mother off to no end because she was a selfish person, and he was a giving person. They were brought up two totally different ways. Rosalind told 48 Hours that Norma often pulled up stakes and left with the kids, once to California when Rosalind was school age. Quote, there was always a man involved. There were several. I mean, we were supposed to call them Uncle Whoever, or they didn't have a name. I couldn't recall exactly how many. 
Sonny told Rosalind that he was tired of Norma's fooling around and coming and going. Quote, he said, I can't do this anymore. He'd had enough. And that was in November. And he died in December. And I'm thinking, oh my God, it was just so messed up and so wrong. When Rosalind found out Norma was behind her father's murder, she said, I couldn't understand why, because dad was always such a nice person. He never raised his voice. He never raised a hand. And it's not like he was abusive or being mean. Anytime she wanted anything, she got it. Larry Phillips was on the list of witnesses and possible suspects. When they interviewed him again, he told them the story about the gun. Larry took a polygraph and passed, which Dean Jackson thought showed he was reliable, even though he was facing drug charges. The police said Larry knew the type of gun, 30-30, and the placement of the wounds, which were not released to the public. He told them where the gun had been thrown, and the same type of gun was found there. They said the only way he'd know is if he was telling the truth. And that's not the only way, just to play devil's advocate. Someone could have told him. Yes. His story is very convenient, that's all. I agree. Investigators also interviewed friends and family. One of the people they talked to was Joel Fuller's cousin, and I'm not sure if it was Vicki Harriman or Karen Reed or somebody else, because everyone's cousins with everybody. (laughs) This person asked Joel straight up if he killed Sonny Groton, and Joel reportedly answered, Don't ask me questions I can't answer. (laughs) When police heard that, they put Joel at the top of the list. Mm -hmm. David Truesdale, the NCIS agent, a.k.a. Tony, said, I've been around some really bad people in my career. Joel is the personification of evil. When you look at him, you get chills. And I think a lot of others felt like that, too. But Joel was not without friends. Take John Ford, former sheriff and main game warden. John Ford told 48 Hours, Joel Fuller is a highly talented, smart individual. He has a wicked main accent with no scruples. I really got to know Joel Fuller when I was a game warden because of the fact that he was one of the lawbreakers. He called himself the deer hunter and he called me the other side. People look at it and they say, well, you're in law enforcement. Why have you got this relationship? I guess my philosophy is, is that I've learned a lot about him. I've learned a lot about what his lifestyle is like. Joel gave John a photo of Joel with antlers he'd carved out of wood and Mm -hmm. a painting of a guy holding a double barrel shotgun. The point of view is looking into the barrels of the gun. John Ford told the interviewer, The talent he's got from his paintings is just unbelievable. He tells how he shot over 50 deer a year. And then he's reading from a letter from from Joel. And and, and let me interject. For For people who don't know, it's against the law to shoot more than one deer year yes so yes it is for people who don't know but he kind of chuckles when he says that because he's then a he's dick reading he's from a, a total letter. dick he read from a letter john boy hope you like this painting yes it's me with a light it's a painting of a guy shining a light on a deer and shooting it can, can i just ask you as an artist do you agree with john ford no Game they're not Warden? Yeah, who has no art knowledge no, the at all. Paintings are, the paintings are very primitive. He always signs his letters, a friend from the other side. Uh-huh. No question about it. There's probably no other person that's as cold-blooded as what he is, from shooting deer to shooting people. <laughs> but John For- <laughs> but John did not believe that Joel Fuller killed Sonny Groton. On the 48 Hours episode, John read aloud from a letter Joel Fuller wrote, which is also shown on screen. 
John, listen to my words. If I am lying to you when I tell you that I did not kill Sonny Groton, may the Lord strike my mom and sister Zona dead right now, <laughs> and may they rot in hell every single day for eternity. And you know, Mr. Ford, that I would never say this if I was lying to you. It's convenient to have God strike someone else dead if you're lying. Yeah. Instead of you. I know. John Ford said that Joel had no reason to lie. He oh. quote, I have a tendency to believe that he really didn't do it. He <laughs> claims that Boyd Smith is the murderer. And I would argue that Joel does have a reason to lie. The two other murderers he did were drug dealers. Sonny was a nice guy, a Navy man, an innocent victim. Joel has a relationship with John Ford, and he doesn't want John to think poorly of him. Right. So, of course, he's going to say, no, I I didn't kill him. Right, right. He does have reason to lie. Totally. And so what was your John Ford story? No, it's just that he's, you know, he's a quote-unquote author, Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's why he looked familiar. He has, you know, game warden story yes. books. I was at an author fair at the Guilford Library. Might have been 2016. He was around a corner. Like, we all had our own little tables throughout the library. And he was around the corner with somebody else going on and on about oh, And it was... There are other game wardens in Maine who have written books, including my pal Roger Gay with his dog. Yes, his nice dog. Who had better stories to tell. Mm, okay. And it doesn't surprise me that he thinks that this triple murderer is a great guy. And so it doesn't surprise me, too, that he would okay. think a guy's paintings were good because his the paintings and I made Joel, I mean, he has, he could have, if he, you know, he's Right, but he's not like this amazing talent. <laughs> at the end of January 2003, Joel Fuller went on trial for murder at Lincoln County Superior Court in Wiscasset. A.G.A. Benson was again the prosecutor. Joel's attorney was Jeffrey Silverstein. The presiding judge was Justice Arthur Brennan, who I believe may have been in some of our things. The testimony at Joel's trial included a lot of talk of Sonny's injuries and, and the evidence. And I want to say, too, on Cold Case Files, I forgot that the older ones show, like, photos and stuff. So if you're watching that, just be careful, because they're going to show Sonny's no, that's face. good. Ugh. Retired Maine State Police Detective Richard Reichel told the court he found three 30-30 shell casings, but under cross-examination admitted they had not been tested for fingerprints. He also testified that police had not followed up on a lot of the names of possible suspects they were given, saying that most of the sources were convicted felons and, quote, not trustworthy. However, Larry Phillips, who testified at both Boyd Smith's trial and Norma Small's trial, testified, and he himself was a convicted felon. Jeffrey Silverstein tried to get Larry to slip up, but his story remained the same. As Larry recounted on 48 Hours, he and Joel were driving around in Belmont, which is near Belfast, when Joel asked Larry if he wanted a 30-30 rifle. Larry said, sure, and Joel said... He had thrown one in that stream as they drove by, and then he told Larry that it didn't work anyway since he had smashed it against a tree before throwing it in the water. Then he told Larry how he used it to kill Sonny Groton, although he didn't tell Larry the name of the victim. Larry told the court that even though he was facing 25-to-life sentence on his yet unresolved drug case, he was not offered leniency to testify. Boyd Smith testified. He told the same story about giving Joel Fuller Norma's information and washing his hands of the matter. On cross-examination, he admitted 
admitted to lying to police for years and to lying to the undercover agents. And of course, so then they said, well, are you lying now? (laughs) And lying to the police during his six hour interrogation. He also admitted that he still socialized with Norma and even had his wedding, not to Norma's daughter at Norma's house. He told the court, at that point, I was afraid not to associate with her. I was afraid if I cut myself off, so to speak, she would send somebody after me. Fuller's defense called out Boyd Smith on some lies he told the court, including the fact that Boyd told investigators that a man named John Curtis had introduced him to Joel Fuller. A man named John Curtis from the nearby town of Frankfurt was called to the stand. He said he didn't know either man. Boyd apparently lied about being laid off to investigators when he really just stopped showing up to work. This was the weekend of the murder, and I'm not sure what's relevant about that. Police investigated that later, which was 20 years later. I think I don't think they investigated him at all. after the murder but when they asked his boss his boss said no he just stopped showing up to work Hmm. so they thought that he was trying to hide something joel's defense attorney was like well if you didn't commit the murder why were you you know why'd you take off like that and maybe because he knew that joel had killed somebody and was like oh shit right you know i hope he doesn't want to kill me now joel's defense was based on the theory that boyd smith could have committed the murder But Boyd had an alibi. He was not in Belfast at the time. And besides, as Dean Jackson from the Maine State Police told 48 Hours, Boyd's personality... I don't think he has the guts to shoot someone in that manner. I mean, that's an up-close-and-personal thing. It makes more sense that Joel would be capable of something like that. Joel was an avid hunter. He's used to shooting. He's used to killing things. He's done other murders in the same manner. Boyd, I just don't see that killer instinct in him. It's kind of funny, almost. This is the first time in the story where a cop or, or somebody on the side of law enforcement disdains Boyd. Because know, he doesn't have the boy. guts to murder someone. I know. You know? It's and if like, you see him, he does. He looks like he's a tall, skinny, like, Mainer looking, you know. Yeah. just According to the Bennington, Vermont banner, but surprisingly not reported in the Bangor Daily News, also testifying for the defense was an ex-girlfriend of Joel Fuller who said he was with her the night of the murder. Also read at the trial were testimonials by two witnesses from Norma Small's trial. One was the father of a neighbor of the Grottons. Clyde Bailey of Northport was visiting his daughter when he saw a stranger. The man was dressed in dark clothing, and according to Clyde, and this was, of course, the night of the murder, according to Clyde, quote, looked like a dude from New York. (laughs) I have no idea what that means, and I wish if somebody had asked him to clarify that remark, the paper would have reported what he meant. Maybe it just meant he was wearing, like, a leather jacket instead of a denim jacket. I know. I would have been nice to know. Clyde Bailey also knew Joel Fuller. He used to drive a school bus that Joel rode. However, he hadn't seen Joel since he was a kid, so he wasn't sure if he could identify him as a man. What I want to know is, so did he think the dude from New York could have been Joel Fuller? I mean, it was very and also poorly written. And also, this is like dark out. I know. You know, it's December in Maine. Although the dooryard was lit. the Joel Fuller wasn't standing know, in the lights the door of the dooryard. Yard. I just like saying dooryard. I know. The other testimony was from Philip Cook of Montville. He'd been approached by Norma at least three years before the killing. She wanted him to find someone who would, quote, make her husband stay away permanently or be gone, end quote. The video of Norma and Tony was ruled inadmissible as hearsay. So there was no evidence presented 
at Joel Fuller's trial that Norma knew him. Because in her interrogation tape, she denies knowing him. She only admitted to it when she was talking to Tony. The whole time she was talking to the cop, she's like, I don't know him. I've never met him, blah, blah, blah. There, she's talking to Tony. She acts like she knows Well, him. that's another thing to ask Matt about. Like, why is admitting something to an undercover cop hearsay? I don't know. We'll ask Matt. Yeah. I'll write it down. Write it down. Wait, tape. I'm writing tape hearsay. Then no. I'll remember. Because every time we say we're going to ask Matt something, then we don't. I don't write it down. I, I have a list like, of uh, questions. That's got two questions. The, <laughs> the trial lasted only a few days, and the jury of four women and eight men deliberated. And see, are are they all four women and eight men? Are all the juries? No, because Norma's was eight women and four men. Oh, it was okay. Yeah. They deliberated for four hours. Joel Fuller was found not guilty of murder, which Whoa. wasn't so great for Joel, though, since he was being sent right back to yeah. Pennsylvania, where he'd be serving his 50-year-in-life sentence in federal prison. Jeffrey Silverstein told the Bangor Daily News, We didn't steal it. It's the result it should have been on the basis of the testimony and the evidence. I would have been shocked had the verdict been guilty. It just seemed like there were too many lapses in the evidence for the jury not to find reasonable doubt. Dean Jackson of the Maine State Police said on 48 Hours, Larry Phillips did a terrible job testifying. I think he was intimidated by Joel, and he'd smoked some pot before he came in to testify <laughs> to try to relax himself, and he was just a mess by the time he got on the stand. Well, you know, the cops and everybody can't blame a witness for blowing the case. You know? I know. They should have done their jobs. And also, there might have been a reason why, which we can discuss later. Oh, okay. There might have been a reason why Larry was uh, intimidated, because he w- he could have been making up the story. Mm. Norma appealed her... Con- and Joel did not... I don't believe Joel testified at all on his okay. own behalf. I'm pretty sure he did. Norma appealed her conviction on the basis that the Larry Phillips testimony was hearsay. The state argued that because Joel Fuller refused to testify and exercised his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination... This was at Norma's Mm -hmm. trial. He refused to testify. The rules of evidence allow introduction of statements by other people. Norma's lawyer, Christopher McLean of Camden, told the Bangor Daily News, We had Larry Phillips saying, Joel Fuller said, that was the only link between Fuller and Norma. And that testimony was crucial to the state's case. I don't think she would have been convicted without that piece of testimony. And I think he's full of shit because she put herself in prison. In his brief, Attorney General Donald Maycumber said that Larry Phillips' testimony didn't directly implicate Norma. Quote, In this case, there was no direct reference to Small and Fuller's statements to Phillips. Indeed, the only reference in those statements to the involvement of a third party was when Fuller stated that he was paid to shoot some guy, which implies another person gave him money to commit the crime. There's nothing in this statement that directly or indirectly establishes that it was Small who paid Fuller. The only way for the jury to draw that inference is when the statement is linked to other evidence at the trial, end quote. Christopher McLean also told the BDN, I want to have an opportunity to go to trial now that Joel Fuller has no Fifth Amendment privilege. I want to have a fair trial based on witness testimony. I feel it would be unfortunate to let a conviction stand based on hearsay. Unfortunately for him and Norma, this didn't happen. Her conviction was upheld by the Maine Supreme Court. The court ruled the testimony of Larry Phillips was corroborated, corroborated, I hate that word, by other evidence at trial, so it was reliable. So it turns out that Norma is the only person who was punished for the murder of her husband back in 1983. And Rosalind said... 
I believe in an eye for an eye. I'm sorry, but when you do something like that, the same thing should be done to you. Just let it be over. It's not really over until she's gone. I think that's the biggest part. It's not going to be over until she's gone. The whole chapter, the whole book, and I want it to be over. And there is a lot of speculation as to why Norma had Sonny shot. Some of the investigators express puzzlement, mm. and I don't know why, because she's a sociopath. She's pretty she was... And also, if he had told her he wanted to yes. divorce, there goes all those nice That's the Navy thing of it. benefits. I said she was sick of him. If she left him, she wouldn't get his pension or any money. Right. The logical solution for her was to kill him. It's and obvious she obviously didn't want to work for a living. I you know. know. And I have a few thoughts, too, that yeah. didn't seem to fit anywhere in my story. First of all, if Boyd had fucking gotten a lawyer when the cops first arrested him, he would have known the statute of limitations. He wouldn't have had to sit through that friggin' six-hour thing. Yeah. And he would have known the statute of limitations had run out, and he would have kept his mouth shut, and everything get would have been... Get a lawyer, people. Innocent or um, guilty, get a lawyer. The other thing, cold case uh, files kept calling Midcoast, Maine, Central Maine, which was driving me nuts. Oh, Jesus. When Norma was first arrested back in 2001 or when she was on trial that they were going to look again at the fire that killed yes. her three children yes. and I didn't read anything more about that but I remember I couldn't find anything about that in the papers but I remember reading at the time I remember that when I was reading about that fire, when I went back and saw the fire, I'm like, oh, I remember something about because, that. Because that's what I started thinking is I wonder if she set that fire I wonder if she did too, because first of all, 8.15 in the morning, three little kids are usually not going to still be asleep in bed. No. And also, she was totally unharmed, and they couldn't get out of the window, even though the person that was trying to open it could see it was unlocked. Yes. You know, shit like that. And you wonder, wonder if she even, like, they were trapped in the room somehow. Yes. By her... So that was, so did you, see, I didn't know, I, I had remember no, no memory. The murder would have happened when I was in I Bitterford. remember her and I remember the husband. Right. I knew that she had hired somebody, but I didn't remember that the guy got off. I didn't remember a lot of it. To me too, when they're, they're, they're like flummoxed over why she would do it. Like you said, and sometimes people say like, oh, a hundred thousand dollars. That's not enough money to kill somebody. You know, for, for some people, it's plenty to kill somebody. It wasn't just right. the money. It was he was going to be home all the time. Right. She couldn't stand him. She didn't want him around. She had her party I mean, in life. She, the poor guy. Right. And she wasn't working and you make a nice living working for, he. you know, he was a career Navy guy. Why the hell did he commute yes. to Rhode Island yeah. every week? It's because the money was decent, you know? Why go through that? The so, money was decent. He was close to retiring. Right. He probably figured, yeah, I can do this for a few years. Also, yeah. get away from my annoying my, yeah. druggy wife. He yeah. obviously knew. He It wasn't like she was pulling the wool over his eyes. He no. knew stuff was going on. He yeah. just His daughter well, said he was going to leave her. Well, that's the thing. That's what I think, that he, he and, may have said something to her. He may have said, you know, do what you want. When I retire, we're going our separate ways or something like right. that. You know, yeah. he could have said anything. Mm -hmm. that made her say shit i gotta get rid of this guy before he splits up with me that's right one thing i did want to say so i was thinking about joel fuller and the argument that he could have maybe not been the the killer and maybe it was some dude from new york <laughs> whoever whatever that is but it could have been somebody else i mean the thing is the police could have focused on him because they knew he had killed these other two people 
He's a logical pick. Yes. He's a, the two things that kind of bothered me that I thought were, sounded made up were, first of all, Larry Phillips' story. Yes. That uh, was kind of convenient that he knew all these details that lined up perfectly with the theory. And the other one was his cousin supposedly asking him about it point blank and him saying, don't ask me questions I can't answer. Both of those sound made up or yes. sound like something like a, I, a cousin, someone would say to like impress people. Right. And about, about both of those things... Wh- when you know when you were saying them earlier with the Larry Phillips thing, you implied that it could have been made up, but you didn't elaborate. Now, do you feel like maybe the cops fed it to him? Yes. Okay. I don't want to like make accusations, but I think it is entirely possible. Who are we that, to make it that he, whether or not he did it. He could have easily done it. I'm not saying that he's incapable of doing it. Obviously, he could do it. If he didn't do it, if he really didn't do it, someone else could have easily done it because I don't think there was a lot of evidence that he did it except for Norma obviously did know him, uh, according to other witnesses. Right. But that doesn't mean he actually did it. The thing I was going to say, too, about the don't ask me questions, I can't ask, it sounds like a line from uh, some cheesy movie. Yeah, I know. You know, not that people don't say stuff like that. So I think Norma definitely hired somebody. I'm pretty sure it was Joel Fuller. If I were on the jury, I would have thought it was him, but I also don't think that there's enough evidence that it was him. There's too many questions about it, and he is in prison anyway. But I just feel like cops, it's easy... Well, it could have been some guy from out of state. And if it was, he could have just come in and done it and left. And then they never would have solved it. It would have been just like the other unsolved. Where would Norma have found a guy from out of state? I don't know. I mean, she moved to Kansas. How did? Why did she but, move but, to Kansas? But I mean, this is a woman. She might have had some connection. This is a woman who's... Whose strategy was to badger I know. her, the wimpy boyfriend or former boyfriend of her daughter. Although, I will say that if she was caught up in the drug scene, there are, as you know, a lot of people coming back and forth mm. yeah. from different places in the country. Right. So she could have met somebody who said, sure, I'll do it. And right. I'm leaving tomorrow anyway or whatever. You don't know. I'm just right. saying there isn't, I'm not saying that, that that's plausible, but for the on the police's side, if they are like, oh, we've got all these unsolved cases. I bet that Joel Fuller had something to do with it. Yes. He's already killed, because, you know, he's killed Right, he's people. already killed a couple people. And now, I'm not now, saying that I don't think he did it. I just feel like there is a case to be made either way because right. there's a lot of stuff we don't know. It, it, well, and part of it, too, is because we're here all these years later and we don't have the full record. As we know, the newspaper accounts are sometimes spotty. They don't have everything that happened in a trial. Exactly. The TV shows are more interested in buffing up the law enforcement guys and making them look like big heroes than telling the real story. That's what we're here for. (laughs) You have recommendations, but before that, you and I, last episode, both told each other to listen to a podcast so we can discuss them and i asked you to listen to bed of lies you did did you listen to it i did and in fact i listened to which confused me a little the seventh episode was actually two lengthy episodes so i don't know why it wasn't just seventh and eighth yes 
I listen to those twice because when I'm listening to a podcast, I can do something like drive or wash the dishes. But I, if I'm doing something online, I miss a lot. So I really oh, can't. Oh, no, I can't. I can't. And, yeah, yeah, and I can't remember what I was doing. But in any case, I agree. I probably would have given it the same rating you did. And for those of you who didn't listen to the episode where Becky rated that, it's the one from The Guardian about... Uh, women who were duped into long-term relationships with cops who were spying on their organizations. Undercover. I did feel that there were major holes in the story. Yes. There were points I felt could have been made, like you said about the wives, that weren't made well. And I never really nailed down... um, the endorsement of long-term relationships since their handbook said there wasn't okay the endorsement was that they were should be married but no there wasn't they weren't supposed okay. to be in long-term right. relationships they were supposed so to I screw don't understand up why their they relationships were. yeah because yes because it's such a faulty strategy to begin with it was doomed to fail i do want to read their material on it she encourages people to subscribe to the guardian which i would have no issue with but i remember a couple years ago on some other thing we were doing i tried to subscribe and you know she says it's so many like pounds a month and so i'm like it's I, not the guardian it's the telegraph oh, sorry same difference as we say in maine no i know it's not the same oh. sorry british listeners but I remember trying to subscribe a couple of years ago and them not having a U.S. Yes. method of subscription. But I may try anyway because, you know, my thing, I've subscribed to a lot of publications over the past year, particularly ones that we use. And sometimes I stay subscribed for a few months, like the Louisville Courier I, I've been subscribed to for almost a year now. So I may do that mm. because I am interested in reading the rest of what they did. And I also believe in supporting journalism that backs up, you know, good stories and does. Exactly. So, Hmm. but I, but I, I highly recommend it. It's a riveting story. And even though I knew, you know, what the angle was because of your rating, I still found it riveting that Mm -hmm. it didn't take away knowing. And um, I do think it was a strategy, police strategy built on misogyny. And I think that the Mm. reactions now from the non-women, except for there was one sensitive guy, former drug cop, Yes, there was one guy that was okay. He he was very sensitive. that didn't want to do it because he didn't agree with the whole philosophy. Right. So not everyone was an Not idiot. all of them. And, and not you, our gentle male listeners. Not all men. <laughs> you know, and also just so cynical, like you said, these organizations, that, you know, they're animal protection or anti-pollution or whatever. And they yeah. did some mildly illegal things, climbed fences or chained themselves to bulldozers or whatever. But it, they're, they, they aren't worthy of a major spy operation. But yeah, it's worth listening to. I recommend it. And so okay. you were going to listen to Dead Eyes. I did listen to it. I'm actually on episode 19 right now, and I'm almost yeah. done with it. I agreed with you, actually, oh. on everything. That one episode about Gary the Masturbator. Right, episode seven. Um, what bothered me about that, the same thing as you, the obtuseness of everybody in it, but also the fact that a man that's doing that that's an aggressive act against somebody and it's not really funny 
And I don't know why you would use it as humor. Because and there's I the don't crux. know. Yes, I understand. I'm just saying the same thing you said. I don't know how they could not have understood and how, first of all, how they could actually think it was, still think it was funny For in this men. day and age, and how they could not get why focus groups of mostly women would be disgusted by it. It's not just it wasn't it's not just that it's not funny. It's that it's offensive. It's offensive. And in a sexually it's aggressive a form way. of sexual abuse. Yes. And I understand though don't support and I'm disgusted by the fact that maybe before the Me Too movement they wouldn't have gotten that. But I don't understand how in 2017 when that whole thing was going on with that movie, yes, how they didn't get that maybe that's why it, it somebody said, you know, it turns out women don't like being masturbated at by men. And so maybe we and should well, have put this in a The funny thing book. is, he says to her, when they had the clip from it, and she says, oh, Gary, it's so great to see you again. And he said, you're ruining it for me. So obviously he is doing it to upset her. And I was also thinking that if I were writing a movie like that and wanted to make that point, you could easily have like a, like a big giant rat that goes by your window every day carrying something right. that's disgusting. And not to get stuck on this one issue when there's 19 episodes, but I just want to also say that the whole episode and their obtuseness is kind of a metaphor for the entire Me Too movement. And that now maybe it's dawning mm -hmm. on men, but yet in that episode, it obviously wasn't. But that said, the rest of it I um, liked. In a way, it is, well, the whole premise of the podcast is kind of self-indulgent on his part, but at the same time, it's very interesting because he do, he talks to other people and gets them to talk about their experiences, which I think are very interesting. Yes. But there's one thing I want to say. I have never seen Band of Brothers. <laughs> I've never wanted to see it. I barely <laughs> remember it. I didn't realize, like, the way everyone talks about it, like, it was this huge thing. Yeah, it was. Huge Maybe huge. it was. It was. I, I have never had any interest in it, and I don't like or dislike Tom Hanks, but I got really tired of him. He seems like he's probably a nice person, but I really haven't Nicest seen any movie he's ever. been in since. I'm trying to think of the last movie I saw. Maybe that astronaut one. I don't know. I no. too. I didn't see Castaway because even before that it. came out, he was he annoyed me, so I didn't want to see it. it. I made fun of Castaway in my third book. Yes, you did. Bad you news did. My, you did. To me, he's one of those people that you can't His dead watch eyes. a movie. Ha -ha. Yeah. You, no, you can't watch a movie with him in it without just being aware it's Tom Hanks. And mm -hmm. so when that happens to me, and it's happened to me with several actors, it wrecks kind of the movie because I'm not watching this story. I'm watching. That's why I don't. That's why I don't like Jack Nicholson that much. But I've been watching Tom Hanks since *Bosom Buddies*. That all said, and I think I feel like Dead Eyes is self-indulgent in an ironic way. Yes, like he knows. Yes, exactly. Yes, but. But the theme of people um, having a great disappointment in their life that doesn't matter to anyone else. It's a, it, yes. And the way he explores it, it, you know, is good. But can you see, like, I could see how there would be people who wouldn't get it and wouldn't yes, like it. Yes, I'm sure there are people that are just not into it at all. But I find it very interesting. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, I listened to the whole thing very quickly. I'm glad I'm waiting for the next episode. And our brother Billy, who I wasn't even really aware, listened to podcasts when we brought it up at your daughter's. He had birthday. heard of it. Yeah, I don't know if he, he knew the name it. of it. Well, he probably likes that one. He probably doesn't listen to us though. 
Yeah. Oh, oh I'm sure he doesn't. I'm sh- the only person in our family. Sometimes our parents listen and our they sister listen Liz. To, yeah, the last one, they listen to it. Because yeah. their cable was out and they oh, yeah. didn't yeah. have anything else to do. Yeah, I don't do. think they listen all the time. But our, our sister Liz is a faithful listener. Yes, hi, Liz. And, and you know what we should do sometime is get her to contribute some recommendations, too, from Oregon. Oh, yeah. She you know. could do that. But should I do my rating? Yes. I am doing my NNW on a HBO documentary. I've only watched three out of the four episodes, and I canceled my HBO subscription after it renewed last month, and I think that it will end two days after the last episode of this, so so I'll get to see the whole thing. Oh, I hope. It's, it's called The Lady in the Dow, and it's about something that I vaguely remember from the mid-70s. It was very confusing to me back then, not as confusing now. A woman started this auto company in California to make this car, the Dale. It was like this three-wheeled, like, super energy-efficient car. The woman, Elizabeth Carmichael, was um, transgender. And it isn't really spoiling it, but it starts, when it starts out, she's Jerry Michaels, a kind of, in the 50s, kind of a con man type, charming con man, low-grade criminal But Jerry also is legitimately transgender, although there are people in the movie who feel Mm. he just transitioned to female to hide because he's convicted of fraud for counterfeiting money and kind of disappears before he can serve his sentence. And he gets married and has five kids, and then he transitions to a woman and kind of becomes the mother of the kids, and their mother becomes Mm. their aunt. It's very interesting it's very well done and uh, to um, go through the rating and bad reenactments if I could give points I would Ooh. give points what they do it's genius it's a little reminiscent of what Terry Gilliam used to do in Monty Python if you watch that where cut out photographs and do animation with them so he marries Jerry when he's like late teens early 20s marries Valerie who's I think 16 or 17 at the time and her younger brother is like becomes friends with him and stuff. So what they do is like her brother now, who's an old guy, who's like in his seventies, they'll him talking and he's telling a story. And when they show the reenactment, like they'll have a cutout. It's probably the guy's like high school picture or something. So they have stuff like that, and it's animated mm. uh, bodies. And it's funny. It, it's very funny the way it's done. They'll have an <laughs> eyebrow, an eyebrow go up and down. And stuff, and it's just so well done. It's worth watching the documentary just because of that. I can't even describe how entertaining that is. Narrative cliches, there are none. Racial gender obtuseness, there is a little gender obtuseness around the transgender thing. Aside from the gender obtuseness that some of the people in the film have, I feel like they had a a young woman in tech is a talking head, and I only saw her once or twice. She's only been in once or twice, but kind of implied that, see, what happens is the whole Dale Otto thing kind of becomes a fiasco, and Elizabeth, formerly Jerry, is accused of fraud. This one young tech woman from nowadays is trying to imply because uh, Elizabeth had to repress herself as transgender and stuff, this is kind of her way of reacting like she had to act this way. And my feeling uh. is, no, there's a, there's like two parallel tracks here. Jerry slash Elizabeth 
is a sociopath. Yes. Um, a, a charming, entertaining one that you like, but still a sociopath. And she's also a woman who was born in a man's body who transitioned or partially transitioned because she was arrested again before, not to give too much weight, before she could complete it. And it, and it was very awful um, what happened to her. But and, for, and, and in fact, Liz and I kind of had an argument about this on the phone the other night. And I think Liz agrees with me on this part, but there's another. that I, I don't feel like she kind of was forced to be this sociopathic acting person, con person, because she couldn't be her true self because she was mm-hmm. transgender. I think she was just the sociopath. She was just both. Her car company reminds me of that movie, the documentary. The, I can't remember the woman now who, but who invented oh, the blood. The blood. Yeah. Right. I was thinking about that. Right. What was and, her name? And this is where Liz and I got into the argument because Liz was like, you know, that the Dale car company was actually a company where they were producing a real car, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yes, it was, unlike the blood thing. But Elizabeth, not our sister, but Elizabeth Carmichael in the f- film, she wanted to be famous. She wanted to invent this, not invent this car, but produce this car. She talked about how she wanted to be famous, how she wanted to be a millionaire, how that was the whole point. And she didn't take the steps to fully produce a functioning car that was supposed to do what it was supposed to. It was just, I'm going to throw all this money at it, get a lot of money from investors, and hope it all happens. Because I'm talking about gender obtuseness. So this whole thing, well, she was a woman in a man's world, so she had to act the way she did, and all this kind of stuff... On one hand, yes, but on the other hand, you still need to, no matter what gender you are, if you're going to get all these people to invest money and going to brag about how you're going to be bigger than General Motors and everything, you have to produce the car and do it the right way. You know, it's, you don't get a pass on that. Yeah. So that's where I, so I'm taking away half a point for gender. Oh, and the other person's name was Elizabeth, too. Elizabeth Holmes. Yes. And blood, Theranos. That was, it was was called Theranos. That's Um, right. And she also wanted to be famous. I think you get a better outcome if your point is not to be famous, but because you have this thing you want to do. And then if you become famous, hey, that's awesome. But um, Mm -hmm. sociopaths don't think that way. Lack of good visuals. Again, if I could give a point, I would not only for the reenactment animation, which again, it makes me laugh. It makes me feel good to watch. I just love it. But also there's tons of video. Part of it is because this, this really sleazy, unethical TV reporter in L.A., made it his mission to go after her, mostly because of the transgender thing, but he was just a dick. I mean, he had some good points about what the car company wasn't doing, but he was also a total asshole. So there's lots of video. There were articles done in, like, Time magazine, which I vaguely remember reading when I was, like, 14 and stuff. So lots of visuals of all kinds. So that was really good. Missing pieces, I'm going to take away half a point, because they have one of Elizabeth's daughters talking and she's very open and has a lot to say and tells a good story as does the girl's uncle or elizabeth's brother-in-law but um there are just major timeline things that confuse me and i like to be able to even if things jump back and forth i like to be able to get the timeline clear in my head and you know when people say oh and then we did this blah 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 and i'm like but wait what about 
this mm-hmm. or why was this here or where did you go there or and I understand because Jerry slash Elizabeth was on the run like they would only live places a few months and then have to move on because they're always ahead of the law and stuff especially when they were younger so maybe there are things they don't want to say but I just felt like there were too many holes it made it hard for me to to grasp uh half a point there inaccuracies anachronisms none mm. um one one thing like is even with the animation like they have the people's heads like the kids heads you know when they're kids on bodies and the clothing is like from mid-70s ah. and um the storytelling is good despite the kind of missing pieces i didn't know when i started watching it what it was really about it just looked interesting because it had kind of the 70s retro title page and you know that'll catch my eye and it was a documentary so the family members the tv station guy who you'll grow to hate the the people (laughs) who talk it's there's a lot of people who worked for the car company and even them they have uh, photos of what they looked like back then. <laughs> so all the reenactments are done like that. And it's the storytelling's very good. It unfolds. It starts out the first episode talking about Jerry Michaels and his life as a young troublemaker and stuff. And it just unfolds into this big thing. And uh, a lot happens. And it's told well enough, despite those missing pieces that bugged me a little. If all four episodes had been released at once, I would have binged it in one night. Yeah. Because oh. Freshness, yes, very fresh. Again, something I vaguely remember because even when I was a, in my early teens, I was a news junkie. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't have told you anything about it. I, I yep. didn't remember it till I started watching. So definitely freshness is a, a hugely fresh repetition. If there is, it's only to tell the story or to make things clear or to revisit something from somebody else's perspective. Beating the drum, I'm going to take away half a point Uh. for the same thing, for the same issue I had with gender obtuseness. A lot of people keep saying that she had to act the way she did because of how hard it is to be a woman in a man's world. There are challenges, definitely challenges, but I think she acted the way she did because she was totally full of herself and had these grandiose ideas. It made an oppression before people realized she was transgender because she was in a man's world. I think people overplay that a little bit. And mm-hmm. I know even now in 2000, um, whatever this year is, or in the 21st century, that women who act that way in the normal course of life just tend to get shat all over. So if she had to act a certain way, she would have gotten much more farther acting the way where women act all, even women who are CEOs, sometimes act kind of more giggly and cheerleadery and defer to the men. That's how women still have to get ahead in a man's world, not by... So I had a little bit of an issue with that. So that's an 8.5. Oh. I highly recommend it. It's a good story. It's an interesting story, but just for the for the animation. Mm-hmm. Becky, you have to watch it just for... I will. It's Can so, I have mom watch it with me? I, I think, yeah, I think mom and dad could possibly be confused by it. Mm. I think your daughter would like it. Now that she's 10, you know, she can watch but this is called The Lady in the Dale. It's on HBO Max. I would say even if you don't have HBO Max, it's worth subscribing for a month. 
Ah. Just to watch it. The, wow. By the time this episode comes out, the last episode of it will have just aired because it airs on Sunday nice. nights, just like old-fashioned TV. And we want to encourage people, now that it's a new year, to check out our Patreon page. Yes. There's a button. I have to make sure it works because sometimes it doesn't <laughs> on our website, Crime and Stuff Online, that brings you to our Patreon page. But you can also find it, Crime and Stuff podcast i think patreon we do appreciate our patrons Patrons. yes very much i i know this sounds like the most shitty is bubble gum and duct tape paper clip together podcast you probably listen to but you know we have to pay for a website (laughs) and blueberry our hosting and clean feed which allows us to record remotely fairly well except for when the wi-fi sucks and also newspapers.com, where we do a lot of our research, yes. which is well worth it. So, I mean, newspapers.com not... has been great, especially yeah. during the COVID, because I can't go to the library. And... Yeah. Well, the main state library, it's funny, it's not even because of the COVID, it's because they were going to do some renovation work. And this was before the pandemic. It, they found out that there was all this asbestos, that it was built in 1969, 1970, and it, it, they needed these major infrastructure overhaul, like the heating system and everything. So they had to close the building for two years. Then the pandemic hit, and so it slowed that down. But they found temporary quarters also in Augusta, the old DMV by where Liz yes. Nichols used to live. Yes, so I'm I looking forward to well. that opening. But with COVID, you have to make an appointment to use the the uh, microfilm the newspaper mm-hmm. microfilm because they have every main newspaper back to when they started it, those friggin genealogy people are always using the microfilm but it i hasn't know opened yet. there was one more thing i wanted to say about today that happened to me that made me very angry oh so today i was driving to work and i got pulled over and i was like i'm not speeding i what else could it be well, you're he not said black. my inspection sticker. <laughs> he said my inspection sticker was expired, and I'm like, really? And I was thinking, I'm like, did I forget to get my car inspected? I mean, I have gone like you know what over month, because I've forgotten. What month do you normally get it inspected in? It's usually around this time of okay. uh, February or March. Okay. And he's like, yeah. Uh, last time it was inspected it says april of 2019 and i was like really and then he went back to his car with my stuff and so i'm like trying to think and i'm like wait a minute last year i went can i say the name of the place i went to so last year i went to vip in south and i got it inspected i remember i made the appointment online and i went in got inspected i i had to pay for to get something fixed and i got a new sticker i I didn't notice whether i got a new sticker or not i just assumed and it's like behind my rear view mirror so if i'm driving i don't even see it while he was in his car i looked through my emails on my phone just to see if i was crazy or not and when he came back i said that's really weird because i know that i got inspected and i even have the email that shows i went and he's like you don't get your car inspected by an email like he's obviously not paying attention to what i'm saying because he's a guy and he's like in his 20s or maybe he's older than that but did he have a military haircut um i couldn't tell he may have had a hat on he was young probably in his 30s he was good looking young guy he goes um well it's very unusual i can't imagine they'd inspect it and not put a sticker on it 
And I'm like, yes. live into well, the mansion. They did. <laughs> and so uh, he's like, well, just take care of it. You have to take care of it. And I'm like, fine. He gave me a ticket. So I have to go deal with that. You can deal with it by mail. You can appeal it by mail. Okay. The the point is, it's a f- aggravating, I know, frigging annoying thing. I had to deal with, and there's no reason for it. I had to go to work. I can't like not go to work because I have people I have to meet at work. Customers I can't just like be late or call in that easily. Didn't get out of work on time. To, I was going to go after right. work before I picked up Hannah, and I couldn't. So. It's just, it's just annoying. It's just like, how can you inspect someone's car? But you did find the receipt. I did find the receipt in my car. And not just a receipt, but it's the page that says exactly what they did and what I paid for. And it was a state inspection. And 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 I wish it had been in my car. I wish I had realized it was like right, like a foot from my hand when I was talking to the cop. Even though it might not have helped, it would have, his condescending attitude would have. I know. I would say the only thing is he probably would have giving you a warning not a ticket and i'm not defending him at all they go by the sticker he could have given you a warning i mean it's it stuns me that you've gone almost a year with a 2019 inspection sticker and nobody else stopped you although they did delay inspections for a while with the pandemic yes they did but i actually got it done before it was the 27th and it was because i knew i was driving to new york right and just in case there was something wrong with my um, car, I got it done. So when were you driving to New York? I went to that wedding on the 29th. Oh, right before the pandemic. Yes. Yeah, the one I wasn't invited to. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So the one the the one the person weirdly invited. There's six of us, three of us, even though they don't know any of us. He kind of yeah. knows me, and I guess. and they invited Liz, and of course she wasn't going to come from Oregon. And I joked haha, that I would go and just say I was Liz, except for too many of our other relatives would have given me up, and they wouldn't have known the difference. Since they wouldn't they have known. Well, they didn't you. know who. Yeah, but they wouldn't have known who was invited. Yeah, the other relatives. But they wouldn't. But they wouldn't have called me Liz. They would have called me Momo. Yeah, but he wasn't around us that much, anyways. Yeah. But his mother would have known. Maybe she no. told him to invite. Yeah. yeah, just invite the nice ones that we like. Don't invite those other three. Yeah, exactly. Fuck yeah. Anyways, so that was my annoying thing for the yeah. day. And well, it was just like, yeah, I understand. I like, I understand well, the cop thought I was just saying some bullshit story. Yeah, so, right. I mean, I don't he, blame he, him. He listens he had to, to pe- give me He'd tell you, you don't know what it's like to be a cop. We have to listen to people lie all day. As I texted I mean, to you when you first texted me about it, just be glad you're not black. Be laying face down on the ground right, with, with a gun, gun pointed at my head. But anyway. I Anyways. I guess that's it for tonight. Yes. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Why don't we just just get this over with? Oh, God. That's what she said. Yeah, <laughs> it is what she said. And now I can hear it. Kabibi! She's ripping up my papers. Maybe you should throw her out of the room. I'm going to throw her out. She's thrown out. Come on. You're going outside. You're being very bad. Poor Kabibi. I know you like to. Oh, how did my door get open? No wonder. You go out. You're out. I can't even hear you. I wonder if we should go out. I'm not saying anything. You can't Ah. hear me because I'm not saying anything.